Well, good morning. My name's Ryan, and I'm one of the pastors on staff. And if I haven't had a chance to meet you, look forward to, to doing so after the service. As uh, Philip mentioned, I'm just going to be honest, which is also, as you'll notice, one of our hopefully uh, points of application. Uh, this topic of judgment, which we will be looking at, uh, has really uh, thrown me um, not so much because uh, I don't believe in a you know a, a judgment. I do. Um, just where do you start with this topic? And as as I, as I hope will be clear too, um, this is a topic that has become the new taboo. So uh, maybe I'm just uh, speaking to myself here. I hope that as we get into uh, the text and get into to, to this topic for us, uh, you'll forgive me for areas where maybe I have not spoken where you'd like me to and perhaps try to um, afford me some grace in the areas where I choose to land on this. All to say, I'm going to pray after I read God's word for us. Uh, to help him teach us this morning on a topic that um, is so grand and huge um, and what it would have for us, what it would say for us uh, this morning. So we're looking at the book of John, chapter 3, verse 31 to 36, and then the book of Revelation, authored by John, uh, chapter 6, verse 10 to 17. I added two verses there. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. John chapter 3. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters, has sent, utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son. And has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And now from Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge, your, avenge our blood on those who dwell on this, on this earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell on the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? May I pray for us. Let me pray for us and ask God to teach us his word. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this morning. We give you thanks for your word. We pray that you would help us this morning to make complex things simple Lord, to make your truths, which are uh, uh, noble to us in ways that would impact our lives and change us. 
We pray, Lord, that you would give us, as we do ask often, eyes to see and ears to hear. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. Dennis Prager, who was a Jewish writer, wrote an article that I came across in my research this week in the Wall Street Journal, which was titled The Sin of Forgiveness. And he wrote this about judgment. He says, in our culture today, judging evil is widely considered worse than doing evil. And there's a lot of that that seems true today. Um, When we begin to approach the topic of judgment or judging someone or disagreeing with one's lifestyle choices even, this in many ways can feel like or has become the new evil in our culture today. Nobody wants to feel judged. I'm not saying I, I love feeling judged. I don't think anybody loves feeling judged. Nobody wants to have judgments placed upon them, certainly from people who don't know us. It seems the worst thing that you could possibly do today then is to tell somebody that you're wrong. Because all of that implies some type of judgment that is being made about them. And in this way, judging someone or even believing in a final judgment as Christians believe, in many ways, feels like the new evil. But this is very ironic uh, to me as we get into this, because while we don't like judgment... What we do love is justice. Justice is something that uh, we fight for, and we should. Justice is something that we want to work towards. Justice is something that we march for. Justice is something that we support. And that is a Christian thing to do. We, we would not disagree with that. We want those things. And we want to be agents of justice. At least Jesus calls us to be agents of justice in our schools neighborhoods, city councils, governments, the whole way through. No one would stand up here today and say what this world needs is more injustice. I hope. But why I say that's an irony is that the way the Bible addresses judgment for us is that you cannot have justice without judgment. Let me say that one more time. You cannot have justice without judgment. If I were to hit you after the service, and I won't, that's just not who I am. The only way that there would be justice for you is if a judgment was made upon my action. Ryan, that was wrong. You're in time out in Steve's office. Or whatever would need to happen, whatever charges you would need to press. Whatever that whatever needed to happen, a judgment would need to be made in order for justice to happen for you. There cannot be justice without a judgment. In short, a theology of judgment then means that justice matters. And I guess I start here because I, I know sometimes, and maybe I'm even anticipating too much, that the word judgment today just is so off-putting. And that that even as we think about God sometimes, some of us are judgment people and I get that, but even as we think about God, we want to think about him in terms of justice, his love and his mercy. But we are not doing him a service nor each other if we don't learn to hold these two things together. That if we care about them, if we care about justice, we must care about judgment. And if we care about justice coming into this world, We have to begin caring about a judgment that has the ability to do that. And that is where we come to God's judgment. 
But see, we are incapable of exercising such a judgment to bring such perfect justice that we all long for. But the good news today is that God is not. God is not. And our portion of the creed tells us this when we read, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And what that means is that God promises perfect justice through perfect judgment. Now, what I want us to look at this morning, and again, we're going to start at the 30,000 foot and move quickly to like ground level, hopefully. What I want us to look at this morning is what does it mean to live, not just as Christians waiting on this final judgment that we have maybe heard of before or maybe are more familiar with, but what does it mean to live knowing that you have actually already been judged and have been found innocent because of God's judgment on Jesus? Something I don't know that we traffic in much. We think about a forward-looking judgment. But what the creed is spelling out and what Scripture testifies to is that for those in Christ, you already stand judged. That's what the cross is. And the question that I have for us this morning is, do you live like that? What would a verdict of innocent upon your life, living in reality of that verdict, what would that do for you today? How would that change your life That's where I want us to go. And so we'll look at why we need a theology of judgment first, and we'll look at the paradox of judgment second. So let's look at that first one with me, why we need a theology of judgment. As I said in the introduction, you can't have justice without judgment. And why we need a theology of judgment is because justice matters. And I don't think any of us would agree or disagree with that. But as we work for justice here, even in our best efforts, Right. We come up short trying to bring justice to bear. Michael Morton, some of you know the story, was sentenced to life in prison back in 1984. He lives here in Texas for, for a murder, for the murder of his own wife. This is back in 1984. Uh, he served 25 years of that sentence in prison before being exonerated by DNA evidence in 2011. And there was uh, a judgment made here. That didn't also accompany a justice, right? And we have maybe started to hear more of these types of things than we would like to, like to. But knowing that, that even in our best system, we don't always get it right. But it ultimately comes up short. We come up short. And we can often be the cause of further injustices. So what do we do here? Well, this is where our theology of judgment matters. Because where we may fail to get this right, we need to know And live with the understanding but the promise that God will, if not today, someday. Michael Morton will be the first to tell you that nothing this side of glory will do justice for the 25 years of his life that he won't get back. Nor will it do justice uh, for the murdering of his wife. But Michael, and I would encourage you to to read his story, became a Christian while in prison. And as he goes around now to fight for justice by advocating for the Innocence Project, which is doing a great job uh, bringing um, prisoners uh, who have been wrongfully accused due to new uh, ways of of, uh, understanding uh, evidence, DNA evidence mainly, as, as he goes to advocating for this project that is free and innocent people, um, 
It is the knowledge or the theology, I would say, of God's judgment for him, of him that changes things for him in his life today. All hope for justice here and now, Michael would say, is predicated on the promise that ultimate justice is coming through a perfect judgment. In other words, what's hard for us to understand because we hear of examples like this, we, we know they happen, we know that there are innocent people in jail, for example, but, but that's just one injustice. There are injustices all over this world. What's hard for us to understand because of the systems that we live in is the trust that God's judgment system is, isn't like ours. To trust that God's judgment system is right and true. To trust that God judges rightly all of the time. That his judgment is perfect, which is why his justice is so sweet. In other words, God never makes a wrong move. So what is the Bible's theology of judgment? Well, well the Bible announces the final judgment. It doesn't shed light on what that will actually look like. In short, and here's what I mean by that. The Bible tells us more of the that, not the what of judgment. As Luke Timothy Johnson says, the profession of Jesus as judge does not state how God through Christ will restore right relations in the world. That is bring about justice. But it does state that God in Christ knows what those relations are and is powerfully at work to make them right. The Bible doesn't tell us all about what the final judgment will look like or be rather its emphasis is that it will happen. And we need this because we are surrounded by even our best attempts to bring justice into this world. As I just mentioned, we're surrounded by ways that fall short But knowing that judgment will happen, the Bible brings us into this understanding that all things at some point in time will be made right. And that this judgment that that the Bible speaks of is, is a judgment where all will give account of themselves to God. That's the truth of the Bible, what it what it what it professes in this way. In other words, you will be judged for your actions and what you have done in this life. And, what, and the part of the reason the Bible even announces a final judgment is so you can know what to expect and know how to make yourself right before God. There's no surprises here. It's one of the things I love about the topic of judgment is there's no sort of hidden door here. It's showing you and telling you about these things so we know how to prepare ourselves in light of this judgment that's coming, but also to have hope in the fact that it will come. I know those sound, again, like a paradox. But the Bible is asking you, what is your plan to make yourself right when it talks about judgment? But before that registers for us, I suspect that you might be asking why. Why will a final judgment even happen? And this is important to kind of go under because this brings about more of these pieces of a theology of judgment for us. According to J.I. Packer, the judgment will demonstrate and so finally vindicate the perfect justice of God. Evil will not go unpunished. Another way to put this is that God loves all justice all the time. This is why we need a theology of judgment. Because God loves justice all the time. These two go together. You can't have justice, which is the eradication of evil, without judgment. And this is unique to God in a way that it's not really unique to us. Because we don't love all justice, 
all the time the way that God does. And one of the reasons is because justice tends to matter to us only when it's personal. And let me give you an example. I've mentioned before that uh, when Ada and I lived in St. Louis, we had our apartment broken into. And, um, you know, I, that was sort of the first time anything like that had happened. And uh, when, when we got the news that, that we found out this, is, this had happened, we, of course, called the police. And in my mind, that day, there was no case in the world more important than finding my TV and finding my DVD player in St. Louis. I was sure that the detective whom I spoke to was honest and genuine and that the person would do all that they could that day to bring my belongings to justice, to bring them to me this evening. Well, when did, when did, this, when did that happen? <clears throat> not that day. Not even in that week. Not even in that month. And as, as the months poured on, I was indignant. I even started calling the detective to give him you know, clues, right? <laughs> Start giving him leads as to where this stuff probably is. Signs were even made and put up on our windows for the, you know, for the possible thief, whoever he or she might have been, to read if they were passing by our house within days to know that we knew what they, that they had done. I mean, it was just, like I had never felt more violated and wrong, yet before all of this, people's cars and homes were being broken into and their stuff was being taken, but never once seemed to have the same, what, hunger for justice until it happened to me, until I was personally wronged. You understand that. Like there's a part of us that until we're personally drawn in, personally wronged, justice just doesn't seem to have the same ring to it until we have been affected by it. And this is why I say that not all justice matters to us all the time, but for God it does. For us, justice tends to matter to us only when it's personal causes or charities are rarely started by people who have not in some way been personally affected by what the cause is for. Whether it's cancer awareness today, AIDS in the 90s, civil rights. Chances are, if you haven't been personally impacted by those things, either personally or by somebody that you love and know and care about, you probably haven't given much thought to those things. But it's not true with God. He cares about all injustice all the time. And as we grow to hate evil and love justice as God does, we know that God loves all justice all the time. And this is why a final judgment must happen to bring about that forever. Again, this is this sort of, we're coming down at about 20,000 foot. Right? This is this theology of judgment that we pull from the Bible. It's going somewhere. The second reason I want you to look at this, or what, what I want us to see um, as it pertains to a theology of judgment is that all injustices, therefore, are personal wrongs to God all the time. And this is the one that might be just so distant for some of us to, to, to really grab a hold of. All injustices, then, all evils, are a personal wrong to God all the time. And see, where injustices that matter to us tend to be where we have been personally wronged, all injustices everywhere are personal to God. It was personal to him when my stuff got stolen, but so were the thousand other injustices happening somewhere in the world at the same time that I didn't know about. When you've been wrong personally, you know how that feels and how you long for justice. God feels that with every injustice. And it's important to go here because you're asking, why does God need to judge in the first place? If in micro 
what I felt with the injustice of my house getting broken is just a portion of what God feels when he is wrong, when he is personally wrong through the injustices and evils that are brought about by sin in this world. How could we ask the question, why does God need to judge in the first place? The Bible calls this sin and sin is God being personally wronged. I think sometimes we need a new way to listen to this. Sometimes our terms can become stale. Sometimes we can hear these things and it's like, yes, I've heard this over and over again, but how do I understand that personally? You've been personally wronged. Now magnify times infinity. This is how God feels about sin in this world. It's how he feels about injustices, about evil, about the things that happen to you and the things you do to other people. And so if we're going to care about justice again, let's go back to the top. We've got to care about judgment. We've actually got to long for it. One of the reasons is because when we look at how God has every right to judge because he has been personally wronged and how he actually demands it. One of the reasons he demands it and that we should demand it of him is because he's the creator. Right, now we're getting into some real theology here, right? He's the creator of all things. All injustices to God's creation then are personal wrongs to him. Think about that for just a second. And, and you don't have to think about it much. If you have children, you know that any injustices, any wrongs done to your kids, how does that make you feel? It is a personal front on you. Like we will be at that PTA meeting to talk about things. Like we will get up and go. All injustices and wrongs to God's creation are personal wrongs to him. I can't fathom that. It, it makes me actually, it puts, it relativizes. It, it makes me sort of... Uh, Kind of, well, how should I put this? It makes me rethink about how wronged I was when my TV was broken or stolen. I mean, you know, it's just like, and, and this is, I gotta be careful about this because that's a small thing. There are big things here that this is why this is hard. A theology of judgment does not ever say, get over and forget about the ways that you've been harmed and wronged. Please don't ever hear me say that. <clears throat> those things matter. And the gospel cares about those things. And the gospel is working to write those things. But, all injustices to God's creation are personal wrongs to him. As creator, God also has the right to judge his creation for the ways it has personally wronged him. As we said, what the Bible calls a sin and as redeemer and king, and this kind of gets us into where we left off last week, the one who has ascended and who has sat down, he actually has the right to do so. And he will, and he will. So there's the 30,000 foot view, right? So much more to say. Right, we could take any one of these things and talk about them for a, a year. Right? And just to recap, the Bible gives us a theology of judgment because justice matters. Right? We will mess this up, but God will not. The Bible is more clear about the, that of judgment than the what it will look like. That it will happen than what it will look like. All will be judged and give account for their life before God. Knowing the final judgment is coming allows us to prepare ourselves now, but also gives us hope as we work for justice today. It's massive topics. God loves all justice all the time, even when we only care about the justices uh, that are personal wrongs against us. All injustices everywhere are personal wrongs to God. As creator, God has the right to judge his creation. And as our redeemer and king, he will. Okay. There's your cliff note version for your theology of judgment. 
What does God do then? As I said earlier, if we care about justice, we must care about a judgment that brings about that justice. And where we are incapable of exercising such a judgment and to bring that perfect judgment, God is not. And this gets to the paradox of judgment in Scripture, which is much shorter. What does God do? And this is, this is what turns, like, turns the world over. He takes your judgment. He takes our judgment. This is the solution that the gospel has for all of us. What the story of scripture tells us is that the only judgment that could, could be, that could be made to bring about perfect justice for all is the cross. And the paradox then of this judgment is that where you and I should be the ones being judged for our sin, the way we have personally the wrong God, as we just got done saying, it is Jesus Christ, God, the judge himself who is judged. And he is judged for us. What does God do? He takes our judgment. You have been judged if you find your hope in Christ. Alistair McGrath puts it this way. We are not judged on the basis of something unknown, but on the basis of our response to Jesus Christ. That judgment is confirmed, not contradicted at the last day. We have already been judged and know the outcome of that judgment. What remains is the confirmation and enactment of that judgment. See, that confirmation and enactment of judgment is what will happen in the final judgment. But what the cross shows us today is that for those who then believe in Christ, for those who see the judge being judged for their sin, you have been judged already and you receive the declaration of not guilty today. What story is this? In other words, God's wrath, as John 3, 36 put it, no longer remains on you. And this is how powerful the cross is of Jesus, because judgment upon Jesus isn't just the solution for all injustice everywhere. Justice upon, judgment upon Jesus is God's justice to himself for you. For the way that you have wronged him, for the way that you have wronged his creation, for the way that you have hurt each other, for the way that you have hurt yourself. It is his justice to himself for all of these things. And the cross sets out to reverse all of the disorder and the rebellion that causes injustice to God and his creation. But at the cross, and this is as we keep funneling down to this point, what are you leaving with here? At the cross stands a verdict that you now receive of not guilty. And this approval of you now, this approval that you have in Christ this very minute, it is here to set you free from all other verdicts and all other judgments that would ever come upon you in this life. And that type of freedom that I want us to look at briefly at the end here is the freedom for us to go lay our lives down for other people, as we talked about last week, to model that suffering to the watching world as we give over ourselves, as we, as we give ourselves over in sacrifice, in sacrificial love to one another, in fighting for justice in this place, as we take on those hits because we can, because nothing can speak against us, as we said, 
It's the verdict of not guilty that you have throughout all eternity that allows you to stand in other people's judgments. Let's put it this way. God's verdict on you, his judgment on the cross on you, allows you to stand today in, uh, in, in the, the hits of other people's judgment. This is what mobilizes us, okay? So let's look at this. Let's get practical about this. First, knowing your verdict frees you to be honest, okay? Yes, I'm skipping over the, uh, the first one there on your handout because it just would be overkill from last week. It wouldn't make much sense if you were just visiting today, and I'm more interested in, in time at this point. So we're going to skip to that second one. If you'd like to know how submission and liberty work, please invite me to lunch, and I will tell you how that works. I would love to tell you how that works. So I'm having to do some editing. But knowing your verdict today, knowing that, 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 that you are judged already today, frees you to be honest. And if we have been judged today, we do not have any reason to hide. This is what uh, the theology of judgment, one of the things that theology of judgment wants to do for you, is to keep you from hiding. Um, Alison McGrath has this story where he talks about the shepherds of East Anglia. And, and these shepherds would place wool in the coffins of their dead to let God know that they were a shepherd. And thus, the folklore goes, he would then understand them and he would know why they hadn't been to church. The whole point is, is if God knows he's a shepherd, he knows all the work that he's been doing. He knows all the time it's been taken you know, to get out in the field and to care for those things he's supposed to care for. Like God would understand him. And if he understood him, if he knew who he was, then he would understand why he hasn't been to church. And he would let him into his pearly gates is kind of how the theory goes. Do we understand that in God's judgment, we are being judged by someone who understands us? Not just understands us, but knows us, cares about us. We don't have to make excuses anymore. We don't have to hide it. If we have been judged already by this God, why would we hide? See, if you're a Christian, how many of us go about our day reflecting on the reality that God knows everything there is ever to know about me? He knows more about me because he knows tomorrow. He knows it all. He knows your motives, your desires. He knows everything. And that puts a smile on your face. (laughs) To me, it makes me squirm. It's uncomfortable for anybody to know that much about me. But he does. This is who you go to. This is who is judging you. You don't have to put wool in your coffin to create some type of excuse so that he'll understand you and then let things go. He has seen you and he has judged you. And that judgment that we look to was on the cross for everything that you are. This should make us feel a little uneasy. Our spouses, our best friends don't know this much about us. I read an article a while back about how Google is now the place where people go to ask questions they would never ask another human being. And what the article found out is that Google, a search engine, by the way, not a real person, a computer, knows us more than the average person. They also went on to say that Google knows, knows us better in many ways than a spouse would know us. Why? Because we don't want to be judged. Like we, we, we don't want to ask the questions to our friends and to our spouses because of the shame and the guilt or whatever it is that would, that would come upon us. We don't want anybody to know these things. And so we'll just type those things into a computer and nobody will, somebody knows. 
Let's put it that way. No, uh, yeah, actually, somebody does know, and it's God himself, right? This, this, this story was interesting because it highlighted the fact that we, 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 we are sort of shaping our life around the idea that, that a hiding can happen. And if the church is somebody that could shed light on that, we're the one place where we know that hiding cannot happen. And the blessing and the benefit of a theology of judgment for us this morning is that you have been looked upon, you've been seen, you've been known in ways that nobody will ever know you, in ways that you can't even hide. And the verdict says, you're innocent. Do you live that way? Do you go to work that way? Do you engage with your kids that way? Knowing your verdict frees you to be honest. And one of the ways that God instructs us to be honest, that is for our benefit as a grace to us, is in the grace of repentance. But if we are still, you know, going about our lives as if we can pull one over on God himself, then repentance isn't a grace. Repentance is a curse. What God longs to do with the verdict that he has placed on you because of Jesus is to free you and to send you out into this world with a type of freedom that nobody knows anything about, but with a type of freedom that the world is longing to grab hold of. And that's the freedom the gospel brings us. This is the first thing it does. The second thing it does is it brings humility into our lives. Knowing your verdict brings humility into our lives towards others, and that is because of grace. And this gets back to the paradox of judgment. The the judge was judged for us is a statement that I heard. I think Carl Barthi actually quoted it, but it's a statement that I hope you will carry with you because it not only feeds us with what is true about the gospel, but it breeds humility into us because it tells us again and reminds us again that where we stand, we stand because of grace alone. That to stand as somebody that is already judged is to stand in grace. As the book of Revelation chapter 6 ended, after the sixth seal was open and you begin to see the wrath of God pouring out, the question that chapter ends with is, who will stand? And it's a question that we should ask ourselves every day. But it's a question you no longer have to fear. Because somebody has stood for you if you know Christ, right? That is believing into the gospel, believing into Jesus. This is how you will stand. But you also know that you no longer have to stand on your own two feet. You don't have to stand, uh, you know, you you can put it this way, you don't have a moral leg to stand on when it comes to the judgment. This is the beauty of Christ being judged for us. But the purpose of that is not to go along, not to go about our lives gloating and sort of living as though none of this, you know, people don't care or whatever it is. The purpose of that is to bring humility into our lives, especially humility with others and towards others, especially humility towards others when they are throwing judgments upon us. Because this verdict, it's so powerful. It allows us to look at and care and have all other verdicts, if you will, to use a term that I picked up recently, relativized by all these other verdicts being thrown at you. Because the more you care about what Jesus is saying to you on the cross, 
that will put in perspective how you are to care about all these other verdicts and judgments being thrown at you. Go back and read uh, Stephen, the first martyr in Acts chapter 7. As he is going to his death unjustly, he looks up into heaven and what does he see? He sees Jesus, the one who has ascended, the one who will come to judge, but he sees his advocate smiling upon him. And this gives Stephen, as we read there, as stones are being hurled at him and as his body is being broken and, and ultimately crushed, the only confidence and joy that he needs. Because that judgment that Jesus gives to Stephen is a judgment that relativizes every other judgment in this world. And knowing that Stephen goes to his death unjustly doesn't end the cause for justice as Jesus resurrects his sins, as he reigns, as we said even last week. These two go together. It's hard to separate them. But what it does is it promises that justice is possible, that justice is coming. What I want us to see about this humility as we ask ourselves these questions about grace is that the only way that we know that we are living in light of our present verdict in Christ is if grace is the signature underneath that. The fruit of that is humility. Is the grace of Jesus, is the grace of Jesus wonderful salvation working humility into your lives? How is that humility working itself out in your relationships? Are you living off the record of the judge who has judged for you? Are you attempting to live off of some portion of your own record? Because that will not produce humility in your life. That will only produce more pride. And as you move along in life in that direction, now you have the real problem of answering the question, how will I stand? I'm not trying to remove any fire and brimstone from this sermon. Because I believe in a future judgment and I believe that there will be two camps of people. Those hiding in Christ and his record and his judgment upon them and those who have refused. There is no middle ground here. Unitarianism is a lie from the pit of hell. The gospel is the only thing that brings truth into this world because it knows of all the other truths in this world that, we, that, that haven't even happened yet. It is a message for you to get out from under God's judgment, but rather to be seen in light of this verdict that has been pronounced on Jesus. That has to bring humility into our lives. It has to be the mark of the church for us. Are you longing for that? And another way to answer to ask this is, are you longing for God's justice or are you just seeking your own? Underneath that is a pride because you feel like this is something that God can't handle and can't do on his own and isn't going to do. But I would argue that it's also a sign that you are not resting in the verdict that you, who once were guilty, stand innocent and free. Not because of something you've done, but because of Jesus himself. Knowing your verdict brings humility into your life and towards others. I'll end here. As I said at the beginning, what I want is for us to be shaped and moved by the prospect of that future judgment that we talk about and read about in Scripture by the prospect of the reality that that judgment has been made on us. And what I want for us is for God's approval of us in that way, to see us as not guilty, to be the one voice that relativizes all other voices. 
I was 28 when I started working with college students with RUF. And before I even say this, this is my story, but I have to give credit to uh, another pastor friend who helped uh, pull out some of the insights of this story. So uh, there you go. Um, Not all the insights were mine. I got them from him. And I'm thankful for that because I've held on to this since this happened. But this is kind of a funny story. When I was 28 and I started working with college students with RUF, I wasn't much older than, say, the oldest student. Sometimes they were my age, but <laughs> that's another story. Um, but 22, 23 is, is, you know, would be like a senior, maybe a fifth year. <clears throat> and on one occasion, a guy that I'd become friends with in town, he started dating a senior in our group. So when I say a guy that I'd become friends with, I mean a guy my age. He was about 27, 28 at the time. <clears throat> and he started dating this girl. Well, her roommate, who was close friends with her, hated this. She had big problems with it. She said, Ryan, we got to meet. I want to meet. I want to talk about this. And I didn't really know what it was until I sat down in front of her and she went on for another 30 minutes about how, uh, how, like, how could I allow this to happen? How could I be encouraging this? Um, you know, um, and, and it, I don't remember much about the conversation other than just the words, this is gross. Like, this is just gross. But these two people, like they can't, you know, they, why would this even be something that you'd be for? And then she says this after, you know, another round of this is gross. She was, I mean, Ryan, this would be like me dating you. (laughs) And what I would say next about this or where the insights that this uh, pastor gave me at the time, I just didn't think anything about it. Um, But if I had had a woman say something like that to me in a different stage of life, like a junior high, high school, college, <clears throat> like I would be done, right? I would be done. I, I would, I, it would crush me. It would be over. See you later. I'm done with the dating thing. And I'm just not going to happen anymore. Uh, you know, confident shot, but that didn't happen. And you know why? And this is what I want to leave you with. Because a girl by the name of Ada married me. She married me. And her approval of me, again, we're we're pulling in last week too, just the approval of Jesus, right? Her approval of me, her I do that we said Jesus gives us, relativizes every other judgment in my life. Now, my marriage can't be all in all to me. She has shown me what it is that Jesus does to me and for me by his verdict. We all don't have spouses in here, but we all have a spouse. And his name is Jesus and his verdict and his approval over you as your judge has the power and the ability to set you free from all other verdicts aimed at you. Past, present, and future that would be landed by others. And even yourself, I suspect, because oftentimes we are our worst enemies. And what the gospel is always wanting us to do, even in the theology of judgment, is bring us into the freedom of living in light of that verdict. That is your charge. That is also your hope. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we
we thank you that you are a God that loves justice. And because you love justice, you are going to judge. You've judged already by bringing creation into this world. And as we sit here in all different spheres of life, wondering what it is that God knows about us, would you give us the peace and the confidence and the humility even to know that you've seen us all and you have said not guilty. That your approval of us rains down on us from your throne. And may this verdict like any other verdict in our lives that gives us the confidence to know that this is the one that matters. May this one be the one that matters. May you infuse that into our hearts and our lives. May we become a people who love judgment, not just for judgment's sake, but love judgment the way that you do. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen.